Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You, I want to invite to open to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Can we bring the house lights up just so there we go? Now I can see and you can see. We can all see. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask a question. What do Joshua Harris, Rhett and Link, and Paul Maxwell all have in common? You're like shaking your heads like, I have no idea who these people are. Perhaps you've never heard of these people. These men are all very influential evangelical leaders who in the past few years have renounced their faith and basically said, I'm no longer a Christian. They've left Christianity. This leaving of Christianity is fairly a new term that's being used. If you listen out there, it's called deconstructing. These people are deconstructing their faith. They're no longer Christians. Josh Harris got famous back in the late 90s, back when I was a youth pastor. His famous book was I Kissed Dating Goodbye. It was a book on dating. It launched him into the famous um, publishing world. He became a megachurch pastor in Maryland. He became a leader, an influential leader of a lot of young adult movements, college movements. He shared the stage with people like John Piper and David Platt and Matt Chandler and people that you would know. And then in 2019, people began to wonder what was going on because he divorced his wife. And then a few weeks later on Instagram, he posted this on Instagram. He says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian anymore. And now he sells and markets a six-week video course on how to deconstruct. If you're thinking about leaving Christianity, you can buy his course. He can help you figure out how to do that. Now, some of you may not know who Rhett and Link are. Some of you younger kids may know who Rhett and Link are. They are one of the top YouTube shows in all of America. They have a show called Good Mythical Morning. It has more than 16 million subscribers. In 2020, they were the highest, fourth highest YouTube earners, earning $20 million a year. Rhett and Link. Now, they were former missionaries to Campus Crusade. They were Campus Crusade missionaries. And they recently came out and said, we're no longer Christians. And here's what they say about themselves. They say they're, quote, hopeful agnostics. So they've come out publicly and said, we're no longer Christian. Maybe you've never heard of Paul Maxwell. You've probably never heard of Paul Maxwell, but I'm sure you've probably heard of John Piper's Desiring God Ministries. Paul Maxwell was a professor at Moody Bible Institute a seminary professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a premium writer for John Piper's Desiring God Ministries, wrote numerous articles encouraging people in the faith. Back in April, he announced on Instagram that he is no longer a Christian also. 
he wrote, I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore. And it feels really good. I'm really happy. I'm really happy. Now, what are we to think of these type of situations? These aren't just your casual Christians that showed up on Easter and Christmas once a year. These are men that led ministries, wrote articles, taught seminary, led churches, were campus crusade missionaries. And now they are openly, consciously, and deliberately saying they're no longer Christian. Rejecting the Christian faith. And Joshua Harris says that he, by all biblical definitions, fell away from the faith. So we have to ask some questions about this. How do we process situations like this? Did these men lose their salvation? Did they fall away from the faith permanently, never to be restored again? These type of deconstruction stories are very difficult to grasp, and they're heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking, and they stop us... and pause us to think about the reality of something like this when it happens. And it's happening more and more. I could have given you a list of five or four, or five or four, four or five more examples. Now, remember last week, I told you I was not going to leave you hanging with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're going to deal with that today. Some of you are like, you're raring to go this morning. Some of you told me, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I'm like, how are you, why are you excited about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Um, that's a weird thing to be excited about. But I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're excited about that. And so we're going to ask that question. What is the unforgivable sin? What if I've committed the unforgivable sin? Can I commit the unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? So let's pick up where we were last week in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 8. Through 12, we're going to focus primarily on verse 10. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, I want to go a little carefully this morning. I want to go slow because this is a topic that has come up over my years of ministry. I've had people come and ask me this question. It's, it's kind of a question that comes up from time to time. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is the unforgivable sin? So I want to try to answer these questions. I want to kind of tread lightly this morning. This is a difficult topic, and so hopefully you'll hang with me. But I want to just remind you of the context. This is in a context of Scripture that is brought up in a, a relationship that Jesus has with the Pharisees. If you remember in Luke's Gospel, back in chapter 11... These religious leaders were accusing Jesus of performing miracles by the power of Beelzebul, by Satan. They were attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. In other words, Jesus came ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were saying that that what Jesus was doing in the power of the Holy Spirit was actually satanic and demonic. Now, Luke's gospel does not tie the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit with that conversation, but Matthew and Mark's gospel do. 
So in Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says this, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So it sounds like it's an eternal sin that won't be forgiven in the age to come. Mark 3, 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So this is strong language from Jesus. You'll never be forgiven. It's an eternal sin, not in this age or the age to come. So in the immediate immediate context, Jesus is talking to religious leaders who have become so hardened, blinded, in their unbelief that they are actually twisting things by saying that what Jesus is doing by the power of the Holy Spirit is actually by the power of the devil. They have clear knowledge of what Jesus is doing. They know that they can't deny the miracles. They can't deny that Jesus is doing miraculous work. So that's not the issue for these religious leaders. They can't disprove that Jesus is doing the miraculous. What they have to do is say that this miraculous working that Jesus is doing is actually a result of Jesus being influenced by a demon or influenced by Satan. So they're attributing this miraculous working to a demonic spirit, to the devil. And so Jesus is before their eyes. Jesus is in the flesh. Jesus is performing miracle after miracle. He's demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit. He's raising people from the dead. He's walking on water. He's feeding 5,000. Jesus is operating in the power of the Spirit before these men who clearly see him with all the evidence they need, and they are so hardened that no amount of information, no amount of persuasion is going to cause them to accept Christ. They're, they're, They're hardened. They're blinded. And Jesus is addressing these men in this context and talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus makes a statement here that it will not be forgiven. There's a sin that won't be forgiven. Now, before we address that, let's address what the Bible does say. Let's talk about some of the greatest news that you could ever hear this morning because I don't want you to leave here discouraged. I want you to leave here encouraged, okay? So we're eventually going to get there. But here's the first thing you need to know. God forgives the most grievous of sins. God forgives the most grievous of sins. There is no grievous sin that you've committed that God cannot forgive. Psalm 86.5, For you, O Lord, are good. And forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. God is good and God is forgiving. Psalm 103, 2-3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Jesus forgives all your sin. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have tons of scriptures that teach that God can forgive the most grievous of sins. A second truth we need to understand is that blasphemy against God, the Father, or rejecting Christ is still forgivable. If that were not the case, some of you would not be Christians here today. It could be that before you became a Christian, you used God's word as a cuss name. You used God's name in vain. Does that mean that you can never be forgiven? 
Sometimes you maybe you got mad at God the Father. Or you said Jesus' name in vain. Or you blasphemed the Father or you blasphemed Jesus and God saved you. Think about Paul for a moment. Do you realize what Paul said about himself? Paul called himself a blasphemer before he was saved. 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Listen to Paul. Though formerly I was a blasphemer. Just out of Paul's own mouth. Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul was formerly a blasphemer, but he received mercy. He got saved. He blasphemed the name of the Lord, but God saved him. Think about King David. Committed two of the worst sins you could think of. Murder and adultery. And God forgave him. King David. Psalm 32, 1 through 2. This is David's own words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Abraham lied twice. Noah got drunk. Peter denied Christ three times. And I can guarantee you all three of those men are in heaven today. Paul's in heaven today. David's in heaven today. And they were forgiven of some grievous sins. Which leads us to the question, what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks about here? Well, there have been three predominant views throughout church history, and I want to share with you those three views. Two of them I don't subscribe to, but the third one I do. So the first view, and I see there's there's valid reasoning for the first view. The first view was really what the early church fathers believed. Jerome, Chrysostom, some of the early church fathers, they believed that it was only a sin that could be committed at the time of Jesus. In other words, it was only a sin committed by the Pharisees who were there in the flesh with Jesus in the flesh who were attributing to Jesus the working of Satan. And so it can't be committed today. It was only limited to that time in history where only blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could only be committed by those Pharisees who saw Jesus and they attributed his working of miracles to Satan. It's unrepeatable today. Now, I sympathize with that view, but it appears to me that there's other places in the Bible and Hebrews that we're going to go to in a little bit and 1 John that seem to talk about an unforgivable sin. So there's other places in the Bible that talk about an unforgivable sin, not just limited to that time and place. So that's one viewpoint. It can't be committed today. The second view, this is what Augustine held to, this is what some Lutherans hold to, this is what some Scottish Presbyterians hold to. It's the view basically that you, you basically live your whole life rejecting Jesus and then you die and go to hell because you never trusted Christ. But if that were the case, then that would be something that every person that died a sinner would commit. It seems like the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a very specific, particular sin, not just dying in unbelief, not just never trusting Christ for salvation. So what's the third view? Well, let me give you a definition from theologian Louis Burkhoff, which I think defines it probably the best. Here's the way he defines it. Quote, This sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slandering against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. Now, I know that's a long definition, but I wanted to give it to you anyway. 
Basically what it is is this. It's not merely rejecting Jesus or dying in unbelief. Let me, let me state it the best way I can state it. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a willful, deliberate, hateful, conscious, obstinate rejection of God in Christ after having been convicted by the Holy Spirit, after having been exposed to the gospel by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit's done a work of conviction. The Holy Spirit's done a work of of showing you the gospel, and you willfully reject it hatefully, stubbornly, after clear evidence. In other words, you've been convinced in your mind that the gospel's true. Your conscience has been pricked that the gospel is true, and your heart may be affected that the gospel is true, and then you decidedly reject all of that. Now, who's the one that brings all of that knowledge to you? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has done a work of conviction. The Holy Spirit has done a work of of showing you the grace of God. The Holy Spirit has done this powerful work in your life. And all this work has been done to you. And instead of receiving Christ, it's not just I don't want to believe in Jesus. It's a I'm digging in my heels. It's a hateful, obstinate rejection volitionally of Jesus after having been convicted by the Holy Spirit, that it's like a seething hatred for the things of God, after you've been exposed to the truth. This is not something that a person in the unreached parts of the world experiences. It's not something that a person in an unreached people group that's never heard the gospel does. A person in the unreached people group never commits blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because they've never heard the gospel. Now, it's one thing to die in your sin and be an unreached people group who's never heard about Jesus and and you die because you never heard and you die in your sins. That's one thing. It's another thing to have clear, compelling evidence coming to your heart from the Holy Spirit and then for you to decidedly reject it with hatred and say obstinately, I'm walking away from all of that. I want nothing to do with it. And you do that with an obstinate, hateful attitude towards the things of Christ that have come to you from the Holy Spirit. Now, how is this evidenced? What's one of the clear signs that you've committed this? Well, there's a deep hardness of heart, and there's what the Bible calls a seared conscience. A seared conscience, and you just have a seething hatred for the things of God. It's not just that you're ambivalent. It's a full-blown hatred of the things of God. 1 Timothy 4, 1-2 says, The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. A seared conscience. Now, I don't know all the workings of this, but I think it's probably something that doesn't happen all at once, but progresses over a period of time. Let's put it this way. A person is convicted by the Holy Spirit, and they ignore it. John 16, 7-8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him, that is the Holy Spirit, to you. And when He, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And you reject it. And then you begin to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You've resisted the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You've begun to grieve the Holy Spirit. And then you can resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7.51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. This is Stephen preaching to the religious leaders that were stoning him. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. And then a person can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the Spirit. You see, when the Spirit has done a powerful work of conviction in your life, maybe even done something miraculous in your life, the Holy Spirit has convicted, the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, the Holy Spirit has done a work, and you quench it, you reject it, you stifle it, you ignore it, over a prolonged period of time to a point that it eventually leads you to a seething hatred obstinate rebellion falling away because you cannot stand the things of Christ after having the Holy Spirit do this work upon your heart. Again, don't ask me how all this works. But there is another term for this. The term is called apostasy. Apostasy. Maybe you've never heard that term before, apostasy, apostate, someone who's fallen away. Do you have a category in your mind for a person that once openly professed faith in Christ and then at a later point in time decidedly, deliberately, vocally, hatefully rejected it and walked away from the faith. What do you do with that type of person? What do you call that person? Well, Josh Harris is one. We saw it earlier. Rhett and Link, Paul Maxwell, and many more. What do you call this person? The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith in chapter 18 says this, temporary believers and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in favor of God in a state of salvation, which hopes of theirs shall perish. There has historically, within church history, and especially among Baptists, a category called temporary believers. Those that weren't truly saved, but pretended like they were saved for a season, and then they fell away. They didn't lose their salvation. They were never saved in the first place. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. There were some people that left. They went out. They, they fell away. Now, Jesus addresses blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as an unforgivable sin. Let's now go to the book of Hebrews this morning and see it from another vantage point. Because the writer of Hebrews uses some of the same exact language about a sin being unforgivable. So I want us to explore what the writer of Hebrews has to say. So Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, some people use this passage of Scripture to prove that you can lose your salvation. I believe it's exactly the opposite. And I hope to show you that this morning. So I'll wait till you get there. Chapter 6, verse 4. 
And I want you just to notice the wording that the writer of Hebrews uses here. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We may not fully understand it. Now, let me just stand up and say this, okay? If you're looking for an expert on the whole issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and everything that's going on here, I'm not an expert in this. This is a difficult subject. I don't know if I've got it fully figured out in my mind. I just know there's a couple of Bible verses here that says there's an unforgivable sin. So look at the language that's used here. It is impossible Okay, what's the Greek word for impossible? Impossible. Okay, it's not improbable. It's not could, could happen. It's impossible. For what? In the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age have come, and then having fallen away to restore to them again to repentance since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him to contempt. It's impossible to bring to someone to repentance who's fallen away. Someone who's fallen away, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. Now what does this mean? Well, it's very interesting that the writer of Hebrews, up to this point in the book of Hebrews, has been using the first person. I, we, languages like brother, sister, and then when he gets to verse 4, it's the very first time in the, in the book of Hebrews, in verse 4, he starts using they. He, he, he describes a different group of people. He's not talking about we, us anymore. He's talking about they, them. So let me, just say that, let me just say this very clearly. If you are a true Christian, you cannot commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If you're a true Christian, you cannot do it. And I'll explain that here in just a moment. But, who are these people that it's impossible to, to, to bring to repentance? Are these outright atheists or pagans living in unreached people groups in closed, closed countries? No. As we will find out, these are people that, are, that have probably grown up in church. They've probably been around the Bible, been around preaching, been around the things of the Lord. Because what the writer of Hebrews does is he gives five benefits or five blessings or five characteristics that's four, five characteristics of these people who had close proximity to Jesus and the church, but I believe were never truly saved. I do not believe these people were saved. So let's look and see what these five things are. So look at what he says. For it is impossible in the case of those who've, number one, once been enlightened. They've been enlightened. That's an interesting language to use. They've been enlightened. They have knowledge of the truth. Maybe they understand the facts of the gospel. But yet, I don't think they've ever truly been saved. They've just been enlightened. They've just been given information. They've been exposed. Some commentators, I don't know if I necessarily agree with them, but some commentators, ancient commentators, actually say that that, actually, that word enlightened is code word for baptized. They may have even been baptized. So let me ask you this question. Does this happen among unreached people groups living with no access to the gospel, or does this happen to people that have been around church, that have had exposure? This happens to people that have had exposure to the gospel. They were just merely enlightened. It doesn't say anything about saved, justified, forgiven. It just says they were enlightened. Okay, second. They tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what is the word heavenly gift mean? Probably talking about salvation. Now, what does it mean they tasted it? In the original language, it basically means to sample, to taste. 
Okay. Some of you have been to Cold Stone ice cream? Some of you are laughing like, we take our kids there a lot, third, fifth, fifth graders, Mini Mountain Adventure. When you go to Cold Stone and there's a flavor that you've never tried before, what do they give you? A little plastic spoon and what do you do? You sample it to decide if you want to have it, what's it big, bigger and biggest? I can't remember what the, what the, the flavors are. But you sample it. You don't take the whole thing in, you just sample it. That's the Greek word used there. These people have sampled Christianity. They've tried it on for size. But they've never truly taken Christ in as Savior and Lord. They've, just, they've been enlightened. They've been exposed. They've kind of sampled some things around Christianity. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Now, the third one may, may sound a little bit different here. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Well, that must mean they're saved, right? They shared in the Holy Spirit. But they've got to be saved. Do you know that this word shared is the only time it shows up here in the Bible? This is not the word used in the rest of the Bible to talk about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Words like indwelt, sealed, fellowship. What that word really means is that you have an association with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you even saw the Spirit's work. Maybe you even came under conviction of sin. You just were a partaker. You had an association with the Holy Spirit. You weren't indwelt. You weren't saved. You weren't sealed. Now, fourthly, they tasted the goodness of the Word of God. There is, again, that, that word tasted. What this probably means is they sat under good preaching. They sat under good teaching. They heard good sermons. They were in a lot of Bible studies. They knew their Bibles, maybe. Again, where does this happen? In church. David Hume was a famous British atheist in the 1700s, rejected Christ, and one day he was hurriedly running to hear George Whitfield preach. Now, George Whitfield was probably one of the famous preachers of all time, especially during the 1700s. Everybody flocked to hear George Whitfield preach, and so David Hume's an atheist, and his friend says, why are you running to hear George Whitfield preach? You're an atheist. You don't even believe what he says. Why are you running to hear what he says? You don't believe what he says. And Hume says, no, I don't believe what he says, but he sure does. Whitfield sure believes what he says. So David Hume was enamored by the preaching of George Whitfield, didn't believe a word he said, but would want to go and listen to the preaching because the preaching was so good. An atheist going to hear preaching. So there's people that have sat under good preaching. And then fifth, the powers of the age to come. The translation really there for the word powers, if you go back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, that word shows up earlier. It really means miracles. Maybe you've even witnessed a miracle. Maybe you've seen the Holy Spirit do something powerful. Remember what the Pharisees were doing with Jesus? They were accusing Jesus who was performing miracles to be doing the work of Satan. So let me ask you a question. Where do these five things happen? Do these happen among the unreached people groups who've never heard the gospel? Or do these happen in church? You hear good preaching. You taste the heavenly gift. You've been enlightened. You've been around the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This does not happen in a place where people have never heard the gospel. This happens in church. Among people who know the truth. Do we have biblical evidence of this? Of a person in the Bible who had exposure, that made an outward profession, and then fell away. 2 Timothy 4.10 For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. There was a ministry partner with Paul called Demas. 
And Paul says, Demas deserted. Demas fell away. He was with me early in my ministry, but he fell away. Acts chapter 8, there's some debate about Simon Magus. Okay, there was a guy named Simon Magus. He was a magician. He was baptized by Philip, and then later on, Peter got in his face and accused him of some things. The Bible in book of Acts doesn't really give us the full story of whether Simon Peter fell away from the faith, what, what really happened with him, but the early church called him the father of heretics. So the early church felt like he was one that fell away. But let me ask you another question. Who's the greatest example of a person like this that had ultimate exposure to Jesus, actually may have even performed miracles and cast out demons, and then fell away. Judas. Judas was around Jesus. Judas preached the gospel. Jesus, I mean, Judas performed miracles. Judas cast out demons. But what happened to Judas? He fell away. Matthew 7, 21-23 are probably some of the most frightening words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may have done all these things in the, even in the power of the Spirit, with evidence of the Spirit. Casting out demons. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, back to Hebrews. It is impossible. Impossible to bring to repentance one who has fallen away. Now, I want to focus on that term, fallen away. Notice that it's not a particular sin, like lying, or adultery, or fornication, or drunkenness. It's not a particular sin, it's falling away. Now the Greek tense, I'm not going to bore you with the Greek tense, but the way that the Greek tense is there is that falling away is something that's done deliberately, consciously, stubbornly, willfully. It's a willful, stubborn, deliberate rejection. And it's impossible to bring to repentance a person who has done that. So if you take if Hebrews chapter 6 and you take the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I think you can make a case from the Bible that there is a type of sin that a person commits that puts them beyond the reach of being forgiven. Now let me give some pastoral care here. Because I've literally had this happen to me before. I had one time early in my ministry here at Emmanuel, I had a person call me up on the phone weeping profusely, out of control weeping, concerned that she might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And she was so worried and she was so concerned. And I stopped her in her tracks and said, said, let me give you some encouragement. The very fact that you're calling me and you're weeping and you're burdened is evidence you haven't committed it. Because you wouldn't care less. Those that commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would not be worried if they committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You would care less. Because you become so hardened, you become so hating the things of Christ, it, your, your conscience wouldn't even be bothered. And so some people, God has wired you with a tender conscience to where you worry about that. Let me, just, let me just give you some encouragement here. If you think you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and you're worried about it, it's probably evidence you haven't. 
Because you wouldn't worry about it if you had. Because you'd be so beyond the point of being so hatefully, rebelliously, obstinately against the thing of Christ and your conscience so seared, you would not even care if you committed it. So how do we respond to this teaching? Well, there's two ways I could go this morning. I'm going to go short in one way, and I'm going to go longer in another way. The short way I want to go is, let me just say this. If you're here today and you're playing games with Jesus, and you're faking it, and you're putting on a good act, and you're around church things, and you can say the lingo, but you know in your heart you're not saved, run to Jesus right now for forgiveness and find salvation in Christ. And here's the promise. We don't see any evidence of anybody asking for forgiveness in the Bible that's ever turned away. So if you come to Jesus for forgiveness today, his arms are open wide to receive you, to forgive you, to accept you. So if you're here today and you don't have Christ in your life, go to him today. You will find his arms wide open to receive you in forgiveness. But I also want to lead a caution. This is where we need to be very, very careful. We can never, ever stand in judgment and pronounce that someone has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I don't think we can even stand and pronounce someone to be um, an apostate. That will be worked out on the final day. God will be the one to make that all work out on the final day. We have no business right here and now to make judgments about who people are. Now, you may have some sneaking suspicions, and you may look at people in your life, and you may think, man, that, person's, that person may have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That person may have committed apostasy. But let me just say this. Until their dying breath, there's always hope that they may get saved. So don't write them off as an apostate. Pray for their salvation. Now, theologically, the Bible says maybe they're beyond the, the, the scope of forgiveness, but you don't know that. All you know is that God can still forgive while they're alive. So you pray for their salvation. You pray for them to come back. So we can't ever pronounce somebody to have committed this sin. That will be revealed on the last day by God himself. And, there, and, and we need to keep hope alive for those that we may be concerned about. So it is a sin. It's an unforgivable sin. And there is such a thing as falling away. But what I want to do this morning, because I think most of you here are not guilty of committing that sin, I want to go beyond that and say, yeah, we can, we can maybe answer some Bible trivia today about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I, I think Pastor Sean explained it well. If, if I masked it at a Bible trivia, I can give the answer. Okay, great. You who? But what I want to do is I want to give you some assurance of salvation because here's the thing. As your pastor, the past two weeks have been kind of hard-hitting, haven't they, from the words of Jesus? What did we see last week? If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before men. What have we seen this week? If you commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. These are heavy words to hear. And I don't want us to leave this place with this heaviness, even though Jesus does give that. What I want to do is I want to just give you some scriptures about your hope as a true child of God. And, and only you know that. If you're a true child of God, if you're truly saved, let me give you hope this morning. So, in John 10, 28-30, excuse me, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. We sang about this earlier. Oh, no, you never let go. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
remember, you're in the double grip. You're in the grip of Jesus and you're in the grip of the Father. And no one can ever pluck you out of those two hands. You're eternally secure. Oh, no, you never let go. Nobody can ever come and take you out of the grip of your gracious Savior. Romans 8, 15-16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you're a dear child of God so that you can cry out, Abba, Father, to your Heavenly Father. And who gives you that assurance? The Holy Spirit bearing witness with your spirit. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory when you trusted christ for salvation the holy spirit came and lived inside of you he's always going to live inside of you he's never going to leave you you've been sealed with the holy spirit until that final day as a down payment he will never let you go you've been sealed with the spirit you've been indwelt with the spirit the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of god and paul says in philippians 1 6 i'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of christ he will bring it to completion. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, He, this is talking about Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus can save you to the uttermost. Jesus can forgive you to the uttermost. Jesus is living to make intercession for you. Jesus has you in His grip. And then 1 John 4.13 by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us His Spirit. Do you know what the greatest gift God could ever give you is? The Holy Spirit. To live inside you. To encourage you. To always be there for you. So let me just say this. As a Christian, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't resist the Spirit. Instead, rely upon the Spirit. Trust the Spirit that He will keep you saved to the end. Charles Spurgeon said this, If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my feeble, fickle soul at last would fall a thousand times a day. Do you hear what Spurgeon's saying? If it was up to me, I would fall away a thousand times a day. I would lose my salvation a thousand times a day if it was up to me. But is it up to me? No. We've got the powerful Holy Spirit living inside of us, guaranteeing that we'll never fall away. So if you're a true Christian here this morning, don't leave this place thinking, oh no, I might have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Leave this place saying, wow, God has given me the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit to prevent me from falling away, to live inside of me, to encourage me, to equip me, to empower me, to make sure that I will last till that final day. So let's find encouragement in the words of Jesus 
that we will never be lost, never out of his grip, never out of his hand. And why do we know that? Because he went to heaven and he sent us the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us forever. The greatest gift. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And would you just spend a few moments this morning evaluating your heart, spending time in worship, whatever you need to do to interact and engage with your great Savior, spend time doing it in these moments we have together. Holy Spirit, one of the things that we see from this passage of Scripture and all the Scriptures is that you are a divine person, not a force or a fog or a mist, but you are the third person of the Trinity and you can be grieved. Holy Spirit, forgive us for those times where we grieve you. Holy Spirit, forgive us for those times that we resist you. Forgive us for those times when we quench you. Let us walk in step with you. Let us rely upon you. Let us know that you live inside of us and you equip us and you encourage us and you empower us to live the Christian life. So Lord, help us to leave this place with assurance of our salvation. There may be some here that walk away afraid, scared, startled. And Lord, I want them to, to understand your truth, to know that there's still time. They can come to you for forgiveness. Nobody's beyond your reach. Help us just to be more dependent upon you, Spirit of the living God. Thank you that you produce your fruit within us, the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you that you produce boldness within us to witness. Thank you that you enliven us and empower us and give us strength in our inner being. Holy Spirit, there are so many things the Scripture says that you do for us and in us that we oftentimes don't rely upon you. We talk a lot about the Father, we talk a lot about the Son, but Spirit, we sometimes don't don't give you the proper credit that you have in our lives. We wouldn't even be Christians without your convicting work, without, without you causing us to be born again. So, so Holy Spirit, help us to be sensitive to you this week. And Holy Spirit, we know that your, your goal is to glorify Christ. You say in, it says in God, John's Gospel that you shine the light on Christ, you glorify Christ. And so Holy Spirit, help us to see Christ this week. Would you shine the spotlight on Jesus? in our hearts. Lord, let us leave this place encouraged because we have been fed by the word. We've been together as a church family and we know, as we sang earlier, oh no, you never let go. Through the calm and through the storm, you never let go of me. Let us walk out of here knowing that we're in your grip and you'll keep us in that grip through your power alone. Not our power, but your power. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen and amen.